Welcome to Business Conversations with your host, business strategist, Clive Ennevar. Clive is joined by expert guests as they talk business behind the scenes to give you the tools and insights to support your growth, security, and serenity as you strive for your success. Welcome to another episode of Business Conversations with Clive Ennevar. I am Clive Ennevar and we're having a conversation with Joe Lukens about business on autopilot, the science of habits. Dr. Joe Lukens is acknowledged as an expert in her field and spends her time inside the heads of individuals and organisations seeking to understand what makes them tick and helping them to reach their potential. She's described occasionally as a psychological Indiana Jones. Joe has a PhD in psychology, over 25 years experience and a breadth of knowledge in the sport and organisational domains. Hello, Dr. Joe Lukens, and welcome. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to have you here. Now, this psychology stuff, Joe. how does psychology fit into business? Yes, it's a great question because I think psychology sometimes um, is sometimes speculated to be the science of common sense. You know, people kind of look at our profession and go, well, aren't you telling us what we already know? Um, and so what, what psychology really tries to do is to understand the human experience. And of course, a big part of our human experience is, is business and, and what we do there. That while we have people within business, there's always a role for psychology there. And hopefully as a profession, we can help to understand what helps business be successful, what businesses can do in the face of challenges. Um, and so there's, there's many places where psychology can have a role in success for businesses. That's an excellent explanation of psychology and how it relates to business. But first, we want to know who is Dr. Joe Lukens and where have we found you geographically? I am located in Sunny Townsville. Um, so I'm up here in the north. And I've lived here for all of my, pretty much all of my adult life. I actually came up here to study originally and um, met my husband in the early days of, of my university study. And, and the opportunities that I actually had up here in the north were such that I couldn't leave. And, and we live in a pretty nice part of the world, except when we have cyclones and Irukandji jellyfish float past in the ocean. But other, other than that, um, it's a pretty nice place to be. So... We're raising our family here in the north and very much enjoying that. Ah, now you mentioned a family. What's the family consist of? So the family is, um, so my husband and I are, are here, as I said, he's a, he's a North Queensland boy. He, um, he grew up on a cane farm in Ingham. Um, and so he's, he was actually the youngest of 10. So he, he learned most of his life lessons on the farm. And, um, and together we have two sons. So our boys are about to turn 14 and 18. So we're travelling through the teenage years at present. I'm sure as a psychologist, they're delivering lots of new instruction and lessons. Yes, they are. They're, they're a bit of fun, my boys. I can always remember one of them when they were younger. Uh, we were having a discussion about the state of the toy room and I made the observation about how many times did I have to remind him to tidy it up and he turned to me and said, beats me, you're the psychologist. So, uh, so they keep me on my toes, as all good teenagers should. I do like that you referred to that experience as having a discussion. <laughs> yeah, yes. It, possibly I didn't call it that on that day. It was a few years ago, so I think I've recovered from it. <laughs> Very good. 
as you are probably aware, having discovered a little bit about me, I think that conversations are very important, not just in business, but in life. But in business in particular, conversations are important. How does psychology look at conversations and how they happen? Yeah, conversations and communication is a really critical component of what we do explore in psychology. I, I know that for me, professionally based on the work I've done with clients, but also from my reading in the literature, I put communication front and centre of what contributes to success. Um, I think there's a, there's a range of elements, but I particularly put communication there. And obviously communication can come in many forms and within business, it really is about the conversation because when you can, when you have the skills of conversation and it, it is a skill to be learnt and developed, it, it allows you to engage with people. And I really think that it, that particularly in the business context, my experience is it's, it's the point that you engage with someone and, and they understand that you get them and you understand what their needs are, that then they'll open themselves up and be vulnerable to, to let you help them. So I really think that that communication piece is critical and, and of all the elements, the one that I'm always reinforcing in the work that I do is the skill of listening. You know, I think we, we learn far more when we listen than when we talk. And so I often say to people, it doesn't matter what your relationship is, but if you want to instantly improve it, stop talking and start listening and, and let people know that you've heard what they said. You mentioned that it is a skill that can be learned. Other than just stopping talking, is there a particular structure that is appropriate to having a conversation to get the best out of them? I think there's a range of things that you need to consider and, and depending on the conversation, walking into it, understanding what the purpose of the conversation is, I think is a really important part. And, it's, and, and sometimes that needs to be an explicit part of the conversation. So, you know, if we might be catching up and if, if I was coming to you for some coaching, you know, I might, it's important that we establish that that's why the conversation is taking place. What I'm hoping to gain from the conversation, you being able to say how you think you can help me. So I, I do think that there is some structural things that we can look at with the conversation. It isn't just about not talking at all because sometimes, sometimes silence is golden and sometimes silence is a very effective strategy of, um, of, of other things. So I, I do think, you know, that intention and purpose is, is a really important component of having a successful conversation with somebody. So we need to start with an end in mind and we need to stay on track. Yes, we do. We do. Keep ourselves to the purpose. And I think the other thing that's really helpful in a conversation, and it's an area that psychology, you know, it's taken us a little bit longer to catch up with Eastern philosophies, but we've, we've really come to understand and explore the idea of paying attention within any of the work that we do. So the phrase that is often used now is, is the one of mindfulness. Um, we used to call, talk about it in terms of awareness. We used to talk about it in terms of concentration. But whatever you want to label it, what we're essentially talking about is when we're having a conversation, having that awareness as to what's happening for us in this conversation, how am I feeling? Because, of course, we know that it's our emotions that drive our behaviour. So if I'm getting agitated in a conversation, thankfully I'm not in this one, but if I were getting agitated in a conversation and I don't pay attention to that, then those emotions will drive my behaviour and it may take me to an outcome that I'm not seeking. So having that little bit of being able to kind of almost hover over the top of the conversation, if you like, and notice how the person in front of you is reacting, how you're reacting, paying attention to the emotions and, 
and all those other elements that are happening in the conversation, the body language, it's all incredibly important. What do I call being present? And I'm pleased that you're not finding this conversation difficult. <laughs> now, you work with sporting groups, you work with businesses, you work with large businesses and small businesses. You're also working, I understand, with defence. What have you noticed as, or are there marked differences across those different fields? I guess the key, the key difference for all of them is in terms of their purpose, their their, you know what what their task is on every on any given day. So if you're a professional football team, you know you you need to be able to get out there and you need to win in your competition. And winning is everything because that's what you're being paid to do. When you're in in the defence sphere, you're about protecting our country and and the humanitarian work that is done. So so the actual tasks obviously are, are quite different. It's interesting though across those domains. I often find I'm delivering very similar types of material because we're dealing with humans in all of those contexts. It's just the delivery of it that's different. So we just talked, as you said, about being present. Um, I deliver sessions on that within the Defence Force, which is, which is a new space for them to be stepping into in the way that we're delivering it. And I need to be able to do, you know, the, the, the soldier needs to be able to do that. The professional footballer player needs to be able to do that. The, the manager of the business who's, who's having an meet, important meeting with, with staff or clients, um, we all need to be able to have those skills. So there is overlap between them, which is probably why I find myself in, in lots of different domains, um, even though their particular, you know, I guess, day-to-day jobs are different. I'm pleased you mentioned that because I work with businesses from a wide variety of fields. You can't put it into a box, that's certain. But people from all around the world people who might be starting a business or are running a business, be it for a short time or a long time, might be a large business, might be a small business. And what surprises these people is that they're learning exactly the same thing from me, despite the perceived differences one business is to another. How do you shift from dealing with, say, defence, which has an enormous history, having been around since man began, and of course they've learned particular behaviours across that period of time, and typically, we just try and do the same thing again, don't we? Isn't that what habit is about? Yeah, it is. And, and I think defence has been an interesting place for me to be in. I've, I've learnt some lessons that I, I now appreciate in business context through my experience in defence because one of the things I struggled with when I first started to work in that space was that it, it almost felt like every 12 months it turned into musical chairs, that... I work in a particular centre out at, out at our third brigade, which is called the High Performance Centre. And but every twelve months, virtually every staff member in there would up out of their seats and then move to their new place, and new people would come in. And I really struggled with the idea that the corporate history wasn't there. And that's one of the things, obviously, when you see the culture of an organisation. You know, my husband's business has been going for over fifty years because it was his father's business beforehand. So much of the strength of that organisation is its corporate history. Um, and I struggled with that in defence. But now I just see how incredibly necessary that is, particularly in defence, because you need to be able to move people out of where they are into somewhere else because, you know, if, if you go to the extremes of being in battle, you know, people, those positions are changing all of the time. So there's a flexibility there in defence that really has encouraged me to think about how that then works in the in, in civilian life. So the solid appearance of an industry like that is actually created through the agility within it. 
Yes, and, and, and the agility of defence in particular, I've seen that in the last six months with some of the challenges that we've faced, is it's, it's just that ability. Defence is so good at, as we would hope, facing some sort of crisis. You know, here in North Queensland, 18 months ago, we had the floods come through and they were truly superheroes without capes. They came through and everyone just, even though it was a challenging time, we all just felt reassured because they were there and they knew what to do, even though they'd never been through it before. So it's, it's, it's like you say, that agility in, in that particular domain is, is necessary and it's been developed over time through, through good practices. And being able to cope with something they'd never actually experienced before, that comes back to good strategy, doesn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. And along with strategy, I guess we learn to create some habits. What are some habits? Well, first off, why are habits so important to actually achieving an outcome that we want? Well, habits are critical. So humans are, we're, we're interesting creatures. So if, if all of your listeners would like to reflect back on their day so far, um, and you think about all those small behaviours that you've done to get you to whatever point in the day you are at the moment listening, listening to this interview, you'll find that you have done many, many things. So interestingly, the, the uh, speculation is, is that humans make between about 30 and 40,000 decisions every single day. Now, it seems like a staggering number, and often I have people sort of push back on that a little bit and say, yes, I know it's a lot, Joe, but I really don't think it's that many. And that's because you don't think about the fact that this morning when you brushed your teeth and you walked to the sink, you decided which hand to pick the brush up with. You decided whether to put paste on left or right. You decided whether to start in the top left of your mouth or the bottom right of your mouth. You decide, you know, let's, let's not spend too much more time talking about brushing our teeth. But when you stop and think about it or you made a cup of tea or you, you know, you got changed, all, the, all of these things that we do, we're making decisions all of the time. But, of course, we, we hopefully don't spend, you know, lots of time agonising over whether it's left to right or right to left with the toothpaste and we just do it on autopilot. So habits are what saves us from having to pay attention to all of those decisions. So I often say to people, if you feel tired, we always feel tired at the end. We feel tired at the end of the day. We feel tired at the end of the week. I know being married to someone in the financial services um, world, you know, they're tired at the end of financial year. So what tends to happen is, uh, our energy sources and, and decision-making comes at a cost for us. So when we have habits in place, we don't have to think about them too much. We know that we just get into our car and put the seatbelt on. You don't have to pay a lot of attention to that by the time you're an adult because you've learnt to do that. Up here in North Queensland, if you were a school student at primary school today and you go out for morning tea, you step out the door, you put a hat on your head. You know, up here we have a no hat, no play rule. You know, the kids don't even have to think about it because by grade two, three, four and five, they just do that on autopilot. So habits are great. About 40% of our everyday is thought to be habits. And I always say to people, habits are great because they save us from having to think. And habits are terrible because they save us from having to think. So all of us can stop and reflect. Like we've all got lots of habits in place. And if your habit is you get up in the morning and you go and do some physical activity and then you have, I don't know, porridge for breakfast, then probably most health professionals would look at that and go, yep, tick, tick for those things. You got some physical activity and you had a healthy breakfast. You know, but by the same token, maybe we come home every afternoon, we slouch on the couch, we have a couple of drinks and, I don't know, a couple of packets of 
chalky bickies or something like that. And if you do that every afternoon on habit, you know, again, it's very easy to slide into our habits. And so that's why it's helpful, as you said before, about the importance of being present. If, we're, if we are present and we do understand what our habits are, then the overarching question that I always put over the top of most of the things that I do is, is it helpful? Is this a, you know, I don't, I don't want to get caught up in that, is it good, is it bad? Because I think then what happens is we say, oh, I have all these bad habits and then you feel guilty. And if ever there was a waste of time, it's guilt. You know, guilt doesn't really get you anywhere other than making you feel bad. But if we can think about our habits and go, look, I've got some really helpful habits. Eh, I've got some that aren't so helpful as well. You know, how can I, but if, if I don't even know that what they are, then I can't do anything about them. So I've just turned that into a very long answer, I know, but I think habits are critical for us because what a habit does is it reduces your need for willpower. And willpower is a finite resource. You know, I, and this is probably not too technically regarded the way I'm about to word this, but think of it like each morning you wake up with a bucket of willpower and through the day you dip into the bucket and which is why it's a bit easier to resist chocolate cake at eight o'clock in the morning. But I tell you what, if it comes past me at three, you know, step out of my way and where's the knife, you know? So, so we're limited in terms of our willpower. So the more things we can put into place as habits, the less we have to pay attention to them, the less we have to think about them. And that gives us more willpower and brain power to deal with it with the unique things that come along that we weren't expecting or the times when we are being challenged to self-regulate and whether or not, in fact, we actually do that. And that means, of course, that when we are establishing these habits, we better put the right ones in place because if we find ourselves going back to our earlier talk about conversations, if we find ourselves in a conversation where we're relying on habit and our habit is to talk, 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 rather than listen, 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 we're not being present. We're just talking rather than listening and learning. Absolutely. That's absolutely how it works. And I am very mindful that I'm, that I'm agreeing to that right off the back of me talking for about five minutes straight then. So I'm going to let you, let you do some talking now, Clive. No, this is, this is absolutely fine. That's why we've got you here, because we want you to talk, because we're all listening, working beautifully. Okay we figured out that we've got a whole bunch of habits. How do we determine that something is actually a habit rather than us having decided to do that? Because if we've got a habit that allows us to talk over whoever we're having a conversation with, for example, how will we notice that we're doing it? Well, therein lies the challenge. So, so we either notice it ourselves because we make a decision to be a bit more reflective in our conversations um, and again, it's almost like introducing a habit to notice what your habits are, but that's, that can work. The other thing is, is that we can seek feedback. Now that takes a little bit of courage to do that and you need to be wise about whom you seek feedback from. Um, but you know, when you think about your relationships and when you think about the feedback that you get from people along the way, particularly in the business journey, you know, you often get that sense as to how things are going or perhaps you, you know, explicitly ask. A client about you know you might get to the end of a session I used to do, I used to do a lot of um, clinical work in the psychology space I don't do so much of that now but I would always finish up the conversations allocating some time to say to the person tell me what this time has been like for you how has it been helpful for you what have we not covered that would be useful for you so actually getting that feedback and you and you soon start to pick up about whether you've 
sort of hit the mark with the person in terms of connection. As I frequently say to people that I work with, everybody that you've met, everything that happens is just the messenger. The trick is to figure out what the message is. So as we look at all these things that are happening around us, people are doing things in front of us, beside us, around us. They're providing messages through their speech and their behaviour. These events taking place that are delivering those messages. What is it about us? What's the underlying thing within us that allows us to decide that this is a good thing or this is some way we shouldn't? Yeah, that, that, it's a great um, reflection point there, Clive, because you're right, there is so much stimulus out there, so much information, and we do... It's interesting, I often say to people when people get caught up into a negative thinking style is that with all the things that float past us in any given second or moment... Um, we choose to hang on to some bits and not to others. So, you know, I often say to people, our thoughts, they're, they're almost like, um, well, we, we don't have an extensive transport system here in Townsville, so I'll say Melbourne does. You know, so if I was down in Melbourne and, and um, you know, looking at the public transport, you know, the buses come along very, very regularly, a bit like our thoughts. And, and you know, sometimes we can catch catch on to a bus, if you like, but I stick with that analogy. And it's, and it's the negative one. It's the negative messages and so forth. And we can get caught up in that negativity when it's interesting. If we just notice that, that thought that we just had, you know, I might think that I, I didn't do something very well or I'm not very capable or, gee, I didn't answer Clive's question very well then or whatever it might be, if I inhale and exhale and just give myself a moment, another bus will be along in a minute and I'll have another thought about something else. So... One of the beautiful things about our mind is it generates so much for us internally as well as what's happening in our external world as well. It's just interesting where we choose to pay attention. And I know the, the phrasing my husband often has used when he's kind of reframed the words to make sure he's understanding what I'm saying is he said, ah, oh, so it's like investing. You know, you've got to decide where you're going to invest your money. And it's a bit like that with our thinking and what we pay attention to. Every time we head down a pathway, it's an investment of our most, you know, important asset, which is our time, you know. And so when we make those choices about where we're going to spend our time, it's helpful for us at some point, either at the time that we're doing it or down the track to reflect, you know, how well did that investment go for me? When we're looking at what we choose to have or to not have as a habit, ideally, we want to know what the outcome is that we want to achieve. And in setting that outcome or goal, that will allow us to make the right choices so that we can ignore those negative messages. Is that right? You can certainly pay less attention to them. And I, I think that's one of the challenges with the less helpful thoughts is that um, sometimes I've seen people take the strategy about, well, just don't think them. Don't think negative stuff. Don't think, you know, just think the positive. And I go... I kind of listen to that and I go, wow, how are you going to do that? Because I've been working in psychology for 30 years and I haven't worked that one out yet. So, so our thinking, you know, our brain is supposed to generate these thoughts for us. That's what it is, that internal commentary on the world. And so we can notice that we might, you know, I might have, even if we went back to that example all those years ago when I was rousing Lachlan for having a messy toy room, you know, I could have spent the whole day thinking what a bad mother I was because I'd, I'd roused at my child. Um, too long ago and I'm very sure I didn't go down that pathway but I could have chosen to do that um, but you know I, that was a moment and, and and moments come and go and 
and he went to school with a clean uniform and I probably sent him with lunch as well. So his day wasn't going so badly. So, but it's, it is about putting that perspective on the things that we do, noticing what we pay attention to and, 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 and thinking through what those outcomes are. But like you said before, you, you mentioned the value of knowing what the goal is, because if we know what the goal is, then we can kind of reverse engineer it and go, well, what are they going to, what will be the habits and behaviors that will be helpful towards reaching that goal. And that's where you can start to see if your current habits are consistent with the habits of success. And I like your comments on the don't have those thoughts. I've heard, especially when I was younger, people would tell other people, you put that thought out of your head. And nowadays I still hear it and I still shake my head about it because I think, how can you put a thought out of your head? Yes, yes, it's, it's, it's an interesting, it, it, all it does is put your attention further onto it, doesn't it? You know, I do that when I work with people around visualisation and I say, you know, don't think about the Eiffel Tower and bing, there it is. And so that's why, you know, if, if we were using a sporting example and an athlete was worried about dropping the ball, I would simply say to them, so what does it look like when you don't drop it? Oh, I catch the ball. Oh, you catch the ball. How do you do that? Oh, I do that with, you know, I, I keep my eye on the ball, I bring... I wrap the ball up, I bring the ball into my chest and I say, okay, so with your eye on the ball, you bring the ball into your chest, you wrap the ball up, so that's what you're going to do when the high ball comes. Oh, yes. And we've instantly navigated away from what he doesn't want to have happen and and then the focus then is on what you're actually going to be doing. It's it's a subtle distinction, but, gee, it's it's an important one. And I often say to coaches, if, if you can hear the word don't coming out of your mouth, pull yourself up on it because you're about to say something really unhelpful to your athlete. And the same thing happens in business. I absolutely agree. My answer to the suggestion, put that thought out of your head, is exactly what you just said, Joe. That is, if you think of what you actually want rather than what you don't want, you are actually giving power to what you want, which in turn heightens the likelihood that it's going to turn up. Yes, absolutely. It's yeah. It's that's such great advice. The, the other place where we can apply that as well, in addition to our thoughts, is around our feelings. So sometimes I do a lot of work now in the areas of emotional intelligence, which we do. Obviously, it's so critical in business, and and, and we're working on it in sport and in the defence settings as well. Um, and it's interesting because you know a workplace isn't typically where you want to go to work and cry when you're at work. There are times, though, when someone will cry. It'll be a client, it'll be a staff member, it might be yourself. Um, and a similar piece of advice comes out where people say, oh, no, 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 don't cry. And, it's, it, you know, and, and that's where my mum's advice from growing up came, comes through to me. She always said, it's better out than in. You know, and it's usually that applies to a whole range of things. But if you're crying and distressed, to tell someone not to feel that is to, is to negate what they're feeling. And, it, and it, you know, we were talking before about the value of, of understanding and so if someone is crying and upset then don't expect them to be able to do anything complex cognitively so it is what it is and you know where appropriate I mean it's always going to be a time and place issue but if someone is crying and upset they're crying and upset so giving them permission to have that feeling is is really important just as it is when we have that thinking and and thinking about what we can do that will be helpful. I'm pleased you mentioned that Joe. I work with people in business, sometimes for a long time, sometimes for a short time. Many of those people are under enormous stress. And one of the things I try to encourage people to do is to work with your emotions, your emotional state. And sometimes that means that they do have a little cry. 
but it's amazing how clear a person's mind is after they've had a little cry. And that applies, by the way, regardless of gender. Yes. And, and I've noticed it, I don't know if you've noticed it, Clive, but I've noticed a change in that through my working career in that I see, you know, men and women, uh, it's almost like crying has become a more acceptable thing to do, which is interesting because, you know, we don't begrudge a three-year-old when they cry because we know that that's normal, but then all of a sudden when they get a little bit older, we start to tell them to stop crying, which is, which is interesting in how we treat it because the emotion is what it is. And like you say, when you can cry without shame, you know, if that's what it is, and you know, you've got to pick the time and the place, well, as best you can, um, you know, there's times and places where you might want to do something else to help someone out from that. But, you know, it, it just allows people to have that release exactly as you said, and it allows you to normalise what's happening for them. And it's helpful for someone if, you know, for any one of us when we're walking into our work day, if we pay attention to the fact that we're feeling teary or we're feeling frustrated or we're feeling a bit annoyed about something, that's data that we can use. And for those people who are less comfortable in the emotional space, if you think of it as data and information, it's very valuable in your business. If you, if you can pick up on the data of what's happening for your clients as they walk through the door, for your, your team, if you're working with a team for yourself, then it, it's vital information that you can use effectively to have your organisations running well and then, again, working towards those outcomes. So if we have a clear goal in mind, what we want to achieve, and we understand that certain behaviours are required to achieve that, how do we sit down and figure it out? Okay, I can hand this over to habit, but not this one. Yes, and be flexible in that moment to a, a situation that you may not know what's happening in front of you, which is, which is interesting, isn't it? Because it taps into that whole sense of, do we feel like we're in control of the situation? So my... So to that point, what I would say is, so like you said, putting yourself in the headspace to be present is a habit, I would suggest. So, so I, would, I don't know if I'm being a bit sneaky with my answer here, but what, what I'm actually saying is that if I know I've got a client coming in who has a highly complex issue that's really going to engage a lot of my brain, then I need to have those skills then to make sure that I'm present with Clive while I'm talking to him and no matter what's just happened in the hour beforehand or what's going to be happening in the hour later, I need to be able to invest as much of my brain power into this meeting. So what I would probably do is I would actually use habits to put myself into the moment. So for me, and this would be my example of it, so what I might do, I'm going to imagine that you are, we're in a world where you're actually coming into my office, so I'm in that sort of world and um, I know that you're coming. So it might even be some of the strategies I used to use in between clients when I used to maybe have spent an hour with a client and then they might be coming into the room. I would greet the client and then I would, as I was walking to the office, I would take three breaths. I would always take three breaths, you know, because uh, oxygen is good for our brain. And, it, and so that's it. So when I see the client, then I take three breaths and the client doesn't even realise that you're doing that because hopefully breathing is something we're always doing, but they're three conscious breaths just to sort of slow my heart rate down, slow my thinking down. That brings my attention to the fact that I've got Clive here with me now for this, for this um, meeting that we're going to have. And then what I would actually do in this instance is I would actually pay attention to some things in my environment. 
So in, in the office that I used to work in, I had this beautiful Turkish rug down the corridor. And as I might be walking down the corridor with you, I might be picking out features of the rug and I might notice the painting on the wall. And then as I get to my office, I notice the coolness of the door handle in my hand and I hear the click of the door as the door shuts. Now, I've just made that sound like I'm not paying any attention to you, but what I've actually done is diverted my attention to the current environment that I'm in and that you're in, which is the room. And when I'm in the room, I'm present. So I'm not thinking about Fred who just left and, and I've got to ring Fred's doctor later on this afternoon or Fred's asked me a question and I've got to research it. And I know I've got this lunch meeting later on. And so that by way, I hope that's, that answers the question is that what I would, I actually use habit to create a space for me to be creative and spontaneous in an environment where I don't necessarily know what's going to happen because I haven't yet worked out what you're going to tell me, but I'm present so that actually gives me the space to best um, have a successful conversation with you. Very clear and excellent answer, Joan. But what result might a business owner, for example, expect from changing just a single habit? This is one of the interesting things I've found working with lots of people over the years is the flow-on effect of a small change. And the, the, I like it for two reasons. The first one is, is because sometimes it's easy to look at our lives, our businesses and so forth and think crumbs. It's a long to-do list of all the things I need to change to make this business work better, you know. And I, I know myself, I've, I've got a, a, a to-do list that I'm going through at the moment where I'm re revamping a few things. And if I look at the list in and of itself, it's quite long. Um, so start with a single thing. Because first of all, that feels more manageable. And we, and we would always say, you know, put things into smaller chunks and start with those. And, and I'm also a big fan that some is better than none. Whatever you can get started is great. So that's good for mindset. But one of the other interesting things that happens with habits and helpful behaviours is a small behaviour can have a wide-reaching impact. So if I can give you an example, I, uh, when I, I work at... Um, at James Cook University, I, I teach there. And through that program a couple of years ago, we ran a wellness and resilience program for school principals. We had a, a, a bucket of money and I had 30 very keen and eager students and they needed some prac hours. So we assigned my very nervous third year students to some equally nervous school principals. Um, and they, they were their personal trainers for 12 weeks. And of course our school principals, you know, the importance within an organisation is that the culture of an organisation is very strongly influenced from the top. And so if we're looking after our leaders, it should flow on that we are then looking after everyone within the organisation. So this was our plan and we, and we decided and we ran this 12-week program and they could, we had everyone from, we had someone running a marathon, which was insane, and then we had, and we had lots of people who had done no physical activity for years, had not prioritised their own health, and just wanted to get out walking or going to the gym or whatever it was. So the program ran really well. But one of the, one of the stories that has always st stuck with me was a school principal and he decided, well, it was, quite, it was probably a biggish step really, he sold his car. So he sold his car and he bought a bike. And he thought, yeah, that, that was the thing that he was going to do. And so it instantly put him into the focus of concentrating on his physical health. But that wasn't the difference that I wanted to make. That's a fairly dr dramatic thing to do, particularly in North Queensland where it's hot and being on a bike in hot North Queensland isn't what everyone would want to do necessarily. But what he did was because he had his bike, 
he needed to leave work a little bit earlier to get home before it got too dark. So he, the behaviour he changed was he would stay back late and work till 6, 6.30, 7 o'clock. And as a consequence of that, many of his staff did as well. So all of a sudden, the change for him was he needed to reorganise his day such that he would, he would be religiously out of the door at 5 o'clock. And what that did, the flow-on effects of that, by changing that one habit, is all of his staff suddenly gave themselves permission to leave earlier. And, and then what, what happened was he wanted to do some extra physical activity, so then he talked to some of the junior teachers and said, can I take your class first thing in the morning? I want to take all the kids out for a walk around the Oval because I need to get my steps up. Um, but he also said, and it means that I can talk to the kids. And what that then did is it gave all the teachers an extra 20 minutes of time in the classroom so they were more planned, they were more organised, they felt more supported. And all of a sudden, we saw all these changes within this school because the principal changed his finish time by an hour and a half. So we, we frequently see examples of someone making a small change. And if I can give you one other quick story from Defence, um, I had a soldier there and we'd been going through a whole range of examples of, you know, what are the things that you'd like to change? And everyone knows what they need to change and everyone has good intentions, but it's getting from a good intention to actually a real behaviour. That's kind of the tricky space. And I gave an example of sometimes people find it helpful to get more sleep if they set the alarm clock to go to bed. So rather than setting the alarm clock to get up in the morning, and you can certainly do that as well, but he was prone to staying up way too late, watching way too much Netflix and then being tired and grumpy in the morning. So he set the alarm clock to go to bed. It was the only change he made. He started getting two hours more sleep a night. He started then waking up before his alarm clock, which meant that he had time. So then he would go for a walk every morning, which he wasn't doing beforehand. He came home, he was still, he was still up before he would have normally woken up. So he made his lunch. Because he made his lunch, he didn't need to buy his lunch at work. He was saving money. And all of a sudden, he turned to me and said, oh my goodness, Joe. He said, I have completely changed my life because I changed my, I, ch I set the alarm to go to bed. So the, the power in sometimes just doing one small thing can have flow on effects that can be very hard to anticipate. So starting small, starting with something, you feel good that you've done something. And then once you've got that secured as a habit, you can look to something else that you might like to add, add into your repertoire. Which of course proves the point that if we allow a habit to sneak in, it's not a good one it could have far-reaching effects in the other direction. Absolutely. Absolutely it does. So it will have far-reaching effects whichever way you go. And so by paying attention to the habits you have in place, asking yourself the question as to how helpful they are, then you can make a decision around, well, maybe there's one small thing I could change here that might make a sizable difference. It's very important for people to be aware of what they're actually doing. But time is against us, Joe. And before I let you go, I want to get some seriously good information from you. Not that we haven't already had seriously good information, but what is the best tip you have received from a business conversation? Well, I think the best tip I've, I've had many, as you said, we get such a wealth of advice, don't we, in, in our business journeys. Um, I always remember my supervisor back in my uni days who, who offered a quote to me that has always stuck with me, and that, that is that a candle loses nothing by lighting another flame. 
And I think that traveling through life and traveling through business with an abundance mentality, you know, that idea of, well, how can I serve you? How can I help you? And not necessarily because I want something in return. I have found for me personally that has been one of the most rewarding things because what we know from the happiness literature is that when we do things for others, it's one of the best predictors of, of success and happiness. So that, that, that's been the piece of advice that I've always loved. And that's a really good piece of advice for anyone who chooses to follow it. What is the top piece of advice you would like to leave listeners with today? Okay, I do have a favourite piece of advice that I try to weave into every presentation I ever do. Um, and, and that is around, um, I think one of the best pieces of advice we ever receive is, is what happens when we travel. And when we travel and we're on a plane and the safety debriefing is coming on, you know, it's very easy to sit there and fumble for your iPad and work out whether you, you know, whether you've got your headphones and all that sort of stuff. What I'd encourage listeners to do, though, is the next time you're on a plane, really listen to the safety briefing because there is an absolute gold nugget in there that I think we can all follow. And what they will tell you is that in the event of unexpected turbulence, that masks will drop from the ceiling. And then everyone knows what they say to you next. They tell you to put the mask on yourself before helping others. And for, for me, that is particularly for business owners, such a beautiful piece of advice that if you are responsible for others, if you care for others, if you look after others, you might have staff, you have clients, you have your family and all of those people, you cannot care for them unless you care for yourself first. So prioritising yourself, investing in yourself, putting that oxygen mask on, and then that will allow you to help and to serve others. So please, please, please look after yourself, um, well, simply because you deserve it, but also because that will, will also help you in your journey in, in helping others. Absolutely. Looking after yourself might mean having a look at those habits because they'll work, whether they're good, bad or indifferent, they'll work, won't they, Joe? They will. They're, they're ticking away. You know, 40% of your day has been spent doing habits. I wonder what they were. Most importantly, before I let you go, Dr. Joe Lukens, how can our listeners connect with you to start their own business conversation? Oh, I would love to hear from some of your listeners. That would be lovely. Um, so as long as you can remember my name, you'll find me. So it's Dr. Joe Lukens, L-U-K-I-N-S. So probably my website's a good place to start, but I'm on all the usual flavours of social media. So whatever, whatever you, your preference is there, although my 13-year-old tells me that I'm terrible at Instagram so maybe don't look at my Instagram feed he says I do a terrible job on that I respond to posts and I look all needy apparently but um so you'll find you'll find me there and um and I like to put lots of information up there for people to have a have a look at and to consider so would would love to meet you somewhere along the way and it's been absolutely marvelous having you here Joe. thank you so much thank you for having me I've really appreciated the opportunity to come and have a come and have a conversation Thanks for listening to another episode of Business Conversations with Clive Enever. Make sure you subscribe to future episodes via your favourite podcast app and you can find more business resources at cliveenever.com.au.